Hey there, just before we begin, uh, I just wanted to record this little correction. Uh, so in the previous episode, I talked about um, a hydrogen atom, and uh, I actually happened to see the video yesterday that I drew that from and got corrected on, on uh, what the scale was. So a uh, very small thing. If in a hydrogen atom, if the uh, singular proton nucleus was the size of a head of a pin, uh, then the electron would be the size of the tip of the pin and it would be located one American football field away and all of the rest is empty space. So, okay. And uh, further, that was actually from Chuck Missler's Learn the Bible in 24 Hours series, which honestly is so amazing. Uh, I highly recommend you check it out. If you want a preview of what uh, his Bible study is like, uh, there's a video, Chuck Missler, uh, something about the Bible being an extraterrestrial message, which is a pun. Uh, check that out. Hello and welcome to Lighthouse in the Abyss. Not uh, Abyssal Lighthouse as previously named. There's been um, a bit of a kerfuffle trying to consolidate the old podcast with the new, and so at this stage it's easier to just scrap the old and uh, you know do things this way, as it will be cleaner in terms of how it appears on different platforms. Um, you know, such is the way of things. I had a bit of an attachment to Abyssal Lighthouse, but I think given that Abyssal is a word that people aren't uh, particularly au fait with, that, uh, you know, this this will be better um, in the long term in terms of people finding the podcast. So um, it's now Lighthouse in the Abyss, and uh, we'll, we'll continue on from there. So... Let's begin with a prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Now I'm sure we all recognize the Lord's Prayer, but not necessarily that particular version of it. So, uh, you know, this version was taken from uh, Matthew 6.10, or 6.9, I should say. Uh, and it's from the uh, English Standard Version, or ESV, of uh, the Bible. So, you know, there's a few things I want to kind of talk about with that. Um, I mean, firstly... You know, I know we all have our uh, particular preferences for Bible translations for varying reasons. For a lot of people, it's, um, you know, which one did you grow up with? For me, being reasonably new to the faith, that's not really an issue, um, you know, because I didn't grow up with a particular translation. I didn't grow up with a Bible at all. So when I was coming to Christ and... Um, you know, on that journey, I got to, with a very blank slate, research and review um, a lot of different translations and read a lot of articles comparing them, read a lot of opinions from various people. And, uh, 
what it got right down to was that I'll, I'll just comment a little on why I think the ESV is a great translation. Their uh, translation methodology is to be as close to the original texts as possible, which means for the Old Testament, and this is a, a sticking point for some people because, you know, uh, there are people who are very big fans of the Septuagint, which is the um, early Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, which is also from, uh, so the Latin Vulgate uh, was also derived from the Septuagint um, and from the manuscripts used there. But then the Jews themselves use what's called the Masoretic text, which is, uh, or Mosaic, which is, you know, uh, purported to be an older manuscript or from older manuscripts. The issue being that because we're talking about, you know, copies of copies, it's hard to say, um, you know, it's, look, certainly the Jews maintain that the uh, Masoretic, uh, despite the fact that we have, um, you know, older um, the oldest manuscripts we have, just for a little history here, um, are actually uh, the ones found it, with the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran. And, you know, that tends to line up with the Septuagint more, which, you know, if you're a big Septuagint fan, you might be able to say, oh, well, okay, well, let's, let's go with that. Um, you know, that's the oldest that we kind of have. But, I mean, that's a question of preservation. Um Whereas, you know, the, the Jews would certainly argue that they have been, you know, copying and recopying this one unaltered text. And certainly it would seem just based on the language and the linguistics and the, and the style of uh, the writing that the Masoretic is older. But look, you know, people could, uh, and, you know, scholars much more knowledgeable than uh, you or I would be, you know, arguing over that for years to come, I'm sure. But the next thing is, you know, why, why start with, well, actually, no, there's more to say on the, on the ESV. So what I like about the ESV, it's, uh, it's trying to be as close to the original text as possible. And in that respect, it's trying to bring us the word of God as it was recorded at the time, like, you know, with the maximum amount of the intended meaning in its cultural context of the time brought forward to now. It's it's trying to be like a time capsule where it's bringing us, you know, the old language as it was intended, but then still trying to make it intelligible and palatable. So in some respects, I mean, for many uh, of us, I'm sure, I mean, even, even myself growing up, you know, uh, extremely secular, you know, I still knew the Lord's Prayer because you hear it everywhere, but you always hear uh, the very famous King James Version, you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven, da 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 you know, um, and it's forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us, which, you know, that's more of a, 
a dynamic sort of way of interpreting it. And it actually works. You know, I don't think there's there's anything uh, wrong with saying trespass as opposed to debts. I mean, there is, there is a, a slight technical change, but I think ultimately the heart of it is still there in the other translations. But it's worth knowing uh, exactly what it is that was said and meant in the original. Um, so yeah, the, the ESV is a great translation that really, there's, I mean, for people who are, who grew up with older translations, like let's say, you know, uh, King James is the, the biggest translation in the world, followed by, um, the, uh, New International Version, which many serious scholars would refer to as the notoriously inaccurate version. You know, no offense to, to Niv fans, I do understand the appeal having uh, read parts of it and there's you know look ultimately if it speaks to you that's the one to go with you know I mean uh, but with the King James I mean there's so much evidence of the of editing and things that have been put in that weren't in the original manuscripts and you know you can get into the argument of whether or not you know these extra editions are divinely inspired or not but in the case of uh the esv they're very much saying like right we're going to take no edits no redrafts no later editions we're going to like take the oldest version of the old testament we can find we're going to take the oldest version of the new testament we can find and we're going to translate those as literally as possible and then we're going to use these other later manuscripts uh, you know, whenever we come across a tricky passage or whenever there's, you know, it's like a hard to kind of figure out what it means, we might, you know, reach into some of these other ones to help interpret. But beyond that, we're not bringing in new content beyond the original. And that's my argument for why that's good. Now, when we get to the Lord's Prayer, it's like, well, why the Lord's Prayer? And it's, well, I mean, this is the one that Jesus commanded his followers his apostles and his followers you know they asked him you know lord how do we pray and he goes this is how you pray and he lays it down he lays it down i would say in black and white but really it's laid down in red and white if you're reading a, a red letter version and you know why would we put christ's words in red well it's because we know that those ultimately as christians have to stand out and have to hold even more weight than uh, you know the the words in black. I mean, whilst we can certainly appreciate the writings of uh, the apostles, you know, particularly. I mean, I was I was reading a um, a survey of of what books um, in the Bible people read the most and find the easiest to understand, and almost overwhelmingly, it's the writings of Paul that help. Uh, you know people understand their faith and and shed light on what it is um which is perfectly fine but let's just keep in mind that you know the true teachings are to be found in the words that christ himself really said so i'm taking this uh out of matthew because uh, there are two versions of the Lord's Prayer, one in Matthew and one in Luke. Uh, Luke's is the redacted form, the shorter form of the prayer, whereas Matthew's is 
the longer form that we're all sort of familiar with. Now, I'll, I'll read from, uh, you know, uh, Matthew 6, uh, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, and on it goes. And then following that, so at the end, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, I mean, to me, it can't be any more clear than that. I mean, there are parts of the Bible where it's like, you know, it's really open to interpretation. You're you're there going like, oh, well, does this mean this? Does it mean that? You know, what am I going to do? And you have to make, you know, decisions based on faith and your own heart and, you know, indwelling spirit as to which way you're going to go and just, you know, believe that in faith that ultimately, you know, that if you make a choice, make a decision about a particular interpretation in good faith that, you know, uh, God will understand and forgive you should you, you know, miss the mark. But then there are some things that are just like, I mean, this this is not, you know, Christ speaking in riddles here. I mean, this isn't a, a parable with multiple interpretations. This is just like, hey, when you pray, do this here's the reasons why. Like, this is a a rare instance of Jesus just being like, hey guys, like, (laughs) it's it's ABC, right? You know, this is one plus one equals two stuff. Just do it this way. Do it this way every time. And that might be tough for certain people to hear, you know, because there's become this tradition, and I mean, it's, you know, it's hilarious because it actually refers to uh, the Gentiles doing it this way back, you know, 2,000 years ago. Uh, it's so strange. There's this tradition of, you know, let's all bow our heads in prayer and whoever's leading prayer will just kind of make up something, you know, pertaining to the time and we're going to ask God for specific things and you know, da-da-da this and da-da-da that. And look, I understand why people do that. And I'm, it's it's not as if I'm... I mean, look, in a very technical sense, if you were just interpreting what's written in the Bible, according to Jesus, that's not the right thing to do. Like, I'm sorry, that's not my opinion. I mean, go and read it for yourself and, and see that uh, it, it couldn't be any clearer, you know, reading from... from uh, Matthew 6, you know, uh, verse 5 onwards. And, but 
I think ultimately, you know, it's if people don't want to give that up, it's like, okay, you know, fair enough, but make sure you're doing the Lord's Prayer, just like they do in, in you know, Catholic uh, services. And then if you want to follow it up with your own kind of thing, it's like, okay, you know, do that if you're going to, you know, who am I to stand in your way? But, uh, you know, perhaps begin with a an Our Father, you know, and end with one. And when you're doing that, really mean it. Like, don't just tone out those empty words because there's a lot of meaning in the Lord's Prayer. I mean, it's genuinely, genuinely, there is some stuff in there. The Lord's Prayer t- really tells you everything you need to know. I mean, your relationship with God is you can pull it all apart from just that prayer. You know, you could do a lot worse as a Christian than just, you know, follow that prayer. So let's look, let's look again here. Because the first thing is an appeal to, you know, don't, don't be like the hypocrites. You know, they stand and they pray in the synagogues and the street corners. You know, those those people that like to get up in front of crowds and go, Oh, Father, oh, you're so powerful. We acknowledge you're sovereign. Oh, da, 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 da. You know, like it's all a big appeal that is like saying, Oh, look at how holy and righteous I am. I've got all the, the platitudes to heap upon God. You know, I'm singing such praises. Look at me. I'm, I'm wonderful. La-di-da. That's very much what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, don't be like that, you know, like God is not impressed by uh, your showboating and he knows what's in your heart. So, you know, if you're praying from a a place of ego, right, you know, you're, you're trying to, uh, you're not praying with genuine humility. You're not praying with genuine love in your heart and a, an appeal for connection with the divine, then uh, you'll be found out. I mean, you know, you might fool the people around you, but there's no fooling God. He knows what's in your heart. It says it right here, you know. Um, So, you know, he goes, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. You know, this is saying like, you know, get, get away from the world, get away from the influence of other people, turn inward, you know, like go, I mean, I'll I'll use some new age terminology here. You know, people would say like, well, they meditate and they go into their heart space, you know? So, all right, well, what does that mean? When you meditate, you are shutting out the external influences of the world and just trying to experience your own consciousness and your own being and what it's saying is, well, you know, that, that consciousness, uh, you know, that is yours is a gift bestowed from God. And, uh, you know, we know that, that God has consciousness because, you know, it's, it's all through, I mean, how else would he do anything? Uh, so going into yourself and experiencing that gift from God, which is consciousness and life and being itself, you know, that is being able to talk directly to 
your father who is in secret because you're going to a place within yourself where nobody else can go, where it's just you and your creator. So, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, it's like, I mean, it's, it's reasonably clear. It's saying that you can go to your most private of private places, but you'll never truly be alone from God, you know? So you got to go in, get away from everybody else, as far away from everybody else as you can, which is inwards, you know, because in the world, I mean, I've got two dogs and a cat in here, which I'm sure you're going to hear at various points. I apologize for the last episode, uh, all the barking, it's, you know, not a great start to things, but we just make do. Um, it's very difficult for me to find a quiet place to do anything, let alone, you know, record this podcast, let alone get any genuine meditation and prayer done. But you go in and you talk to your father who sees and hears in secret. What does in secret mean? Secret from everybody else, you know, because when it's just you and he, you've got no one left to perform for. There's no people around you trying to impress, you know, it's just you and him. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Oh boy, that's that's harsh and just as relevant 2,000 years later. You know, he, he knows us, he knows our nature, and, you know, the Gentiles, we're, us being Gentiles, the non-Jews, uh, well, unless you're a Jew listening, in which case, you know, but yeah, Gentile means non-Jew. And uh, I'm not a Jew, so I'm a Gentile. And it's exactly what we do. It really is. I mean, all these people I know, and I've had this argument with a few people, you know, where they go, no, 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 you've got to, you know, it's all about, you know, living your own dynamic relationship with God and your own dynamic relationship with Christ when you pray, you know, he wants to have a conversation with you. And it's like, does he want to have a conversation with me? I'm not convinced. Because if you have a conception of God, which is knows everything, knows what's in your heart better than you do, knows what's in your mind better than you do, knows who you are better than you do, knows what you need, knows what you want, and is only interested in giving you what you need because it's, you know, it's thy will be done, guys. Like, I mean, this is, this is, it's such an anchor point. And I mean, I'll connect this to my previous episode on, on good and evil and, and Christ and Satan. I mean, this duality, the satanic Luciferian attitude is my will be done because his whole thing was he rebelled against the most high God and said, I know better than you. Things should go the way I think they should go. That was his rebellion. You know, that's the choice to turn your back on God. Then with Christ, he's the thy will guy. He's basically gone, hey, look, God's in control of all of this. He's got it handled. This whole thing, he knows the end from the beginning. It's He's got wisdom like you wouldn't believe. He's got knowledge like you wouldn't believe. He's got he's writing the story. He's got everything laid out just the way 
that he wants it to go. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what you need. He knows what you want. And look, sometimes he's going to give you what you want just to show you, just to teach you a lesson that you don't actually know what you want. Because how many times have we as, as flawed human beings desired something that, you know, we wanted it, but when we actually got it, it turned out that it was, you know, not good for us. It showed that, you know, our, our desire was flawed. Our aim was faulty. You know, we were aiming at the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. And we, you know, we get our comeuppance in the form of a lesson because sometimes we get what we want and we realize, oh boy, that, that was, that was not the right thing to go for. Well, God knows what you need and he knows what you want and he knows what you're going to ask for before you ask for it. So why ask, you know? Oh, here go the animals. You know, so really it's, I just don't see a way around this, you know, um, I think there's, there's benefit in articulating for yourself what you think you want. I mean, I, I do think that there's benefits in, you know, uh, talking about, you know, articulating yourself effectively, you know, because when you articulate yourself out loud, um, much as I'm doing now, it forces you to make decisions. So if there's anything you're unsure about, well, you know, as you try and set it in stone by, you know, saying it out loud or writing it down, it, it forces you to decide one way or the other how you feel. And then, you know, so th there are there are benefits, but I think those are more kind of like personal benefits. And, you know, you might be able to do that in a journal. I mean, look, if you want to, if you want to, it's like there's a difference between talking and praying to God. Let's put it that way. Maybe that's a better way of thinking about it. You know, when when you pray, this is the way to pray the Lord's Prayer, you know. But then beyond that, anything else is just talking to God. And that's probably fine. But, you know, make sure that your prayers are... I don't know. I mean, to to think you know better than the Most High to me is just it's you know that's that's not a it's not a good path, you know. So I mean, let's let's really break it down. Well, so I mean, the next verse was, "Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him." I mean, it's very straightforward. So, our Father in heaven. All right, well, that's fairly self-explanatory. Hallowed be your name. Again, pretty straightforward. Your kingdom come. So, you know, that we are within a process that is the manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. That, you know, he set forth this creation and we're part of a process whereby gradually God's kingdom is forever coming into being, gradually and gradually 
you know, humanity moves through time and we get to see the gradual unveiling of God's kingdom on earth. So, yeah, that's pretty important. Your will be done. Okay. Oh, I should follow the whole line. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, all right, we know in heaven, God's will is forever laid out. I mean, you know, there's nothing that happens in heaven that God is not aware of or ultimately in control of because it has to be that way. And people might go, oh, well, well, what about, you know, Lucifer rebelled against him, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yeah, no, he knew about that. There's no way around the fact because for Lucifer to be able to effectively rebel against God in a way that actually threatens God in any kind of genuine way, he would have to be of like equal or, or higher power than God, and that's just not possible. So, you know, this is, there's, there's like two threads to, you know, well, there's more than two threads to creation, but let's say that there's kind of two main threads. You know, one of them is the redemption of humanity through the process of, of creation and life that we live. And then the other is, you know, the redemption, well, I'll say the redemption of Lucifer because I do think that ultimately, ultimately, all beings will be saved. Um, you know, although it's a complicated idea, like maybe, maybe you know, don't, don't just kind of quote that as a slice. I need like an episode to kind of explain why I think that. Um, but the other kind of thread is, you know, from like a heavenly perspective is what we're seeing uh, is the rebellion of Lucifer. He's being taught a lesson. So he's been kind of given, you know, it's like, okay, go off, have your province. You can have some, some power. You can be in charge of, you know, the temptation of mankind. You can be in charge of basically trying to turn everything to shit. Um, you know, trying to draw people away from God. You can try and blind people to the truth. You can try and lead them into doing all kinds of evil and dastardly things. You know, you can basically be the all of the wrong choices that are possible uh, as a necessary consequence of free will. Because, you know, that's that, as I, I explained in the last episode, that really is what it comes down to. Um, price of free will is the capacity for evil. All of the capacity for evil is, and fear and terror is ruled over. And, and just turning away from spirituality at all, you know, it's, it's materialism. Um, materialism is very much a Luciferian concept because it's identifying with you know, the uh, creation over the creator. But, you know, so, you know, there's there's two sort of threads because I think that ultimately the story of creation is in part um, God teaching Lucifer a lesson and that when everything is all said and done and the whole thing resolves exactly how God had it intended from the very first instance, you know, that Lucifer being, he'll, he'll be the last one left because everyone else will have turned to God 
And Lucifer represents the most stubborn, my will, not thine, that is possible. He's like the archetypal, I know best, not father knows best. And one day during, you know, the, the apocalypse, let's say, um, you know, at the end of creation, he will be the last one left standing with, you know, no friends, no cohorts. Um, it'll just be, you know, ultimately him deciding if he's going to turn and face his father and say, I was wrong, you were right, and you just showed me, you know, how it, how it really is. And humanity is caught in this, this struggle, you know, between good and evil. Like, will we, as we struggle forward through time, the story of humanity is this, you know, from the fall we fell into darkness, but we're gradually over time, over generations, just struggling upwards towards the light and that, you know, Ultimately, we all need to understand that we're all in this together and that the best thing we can do is be a helping hand for our fellow man because, you know, as we all struggle upwards, you know, it's the duty of those who are closer to the light to reach down and pull those, you know, that they can reach up with them you know, similarly, those that are beneath but in looking in an upwards direction, they want to push, you know, those that they can upwards as much as possible. But there are those who do dwell a little closer to hell. And unfortunately, it's going to be the case for some, you know, those that are trapped in the darkness and in some sense can't see any way out that they, you know, through their own misguidedness will try and reach up only to drag those who are trying to go towards the light down into the pits of hell. You know, there are forces, both material, like, you know, in, in our default reality that, hey, look, perhaps it's better to, to tell this in a story rather than abstract it if you uh okay I, I live in australia right and uh i quit drinking some years ago uh drinking i i identified the fact that it was doing nothing good for me and i noticed some things because i i quit gradually over several years you know i was sort of doing like a dry month for charity and then three months and six months and i got up to a year and then I just quit right out. But every time I quit, I noticed something. And that is that uh, people really, really would encourage me. I mean, we have a, a very strong drinking culture in this, this country. And uh, as soon as I would quit, people who were friends would try and put a drink in my hand, you know, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, 
you know, there's this kind of like desire for cultural normalcy, you know, like there's this idea that everybody drinks and in Australia people really drink, you know, and you tell people you don't drink and it's this whole thing. They feel judged because, you know, well, you know, you don't drink, but I drink. You must be judging me and looking down on me because I drink. And I was like, no, not really. You know, I mean, because here's the thing. Like, if you drink, you probably don't drink like I used to drink. I used to really drink, you know. And, but be that as it may, um, there is a little bit of an aspect, I think, of, I mean, we all know what misery loves. Misery loves company. And so, you know, those people who are really in a dark place where they're, let's say they're addicted to alcohol and it fuels their depression, their anxiety, their cynical worldview. This, they like, they, they have to keep people down there with them. You know, if they feel, if you, hell is like the place you feel that you can't get out of. You know, I mean, I really remember this from when, you know, I, I do feel like I was a genuine denizen of hell on earth for, for many years when I was, living in darkness and, and living in sin. And the people that are down there, they don't feel like they can get out. In fact, they feel like this is actually what life is like. And, you know, people need to, in some sense, there's a part of them that think people need to know that people need to agree with me. Like, they, they delude themselves into thinking like, well, I see the world for what it is and the world is horrible and everybody should uh, suffer as I suffer through this painful knowledge. Like they, they have a very, um, and I say they, I used to be like this. I am not, you know, I'm not uh, saying that I was not like this. I was 100% like this, you know. You, you get into a negative, cynical way of thinking. You think that you're the one who sees the truth and everybody else is blind. You know, you see those, those happy people as living in some kind of bubble where they've been lucky enough not to have to deal with the gritty realities of the world. But it's, it's just simply not the case um, that the world is like that because you know we know that there's plenty of you know joy and hope and the human race has such magical powerful potential for love um and oh, well look that's that's a, the subject for another thing i'm going to go too 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 many tangents too many tangents okay so let's pull it back in um people do for whatever misguided reason, try and keep you down sometimes. You know, it's possible and it can come from directions you don't expect, you know, like family who are supposed to be on your side. Well, family can act extremely malevolently without even really meaning to. I mean, you know, in there can be extreme examples of some really, really screwed up stuff. Um and I'm sure we all know stories like that and it doesn't bear, you know, necessarily getting into, but even in very small ways, it's like, it can be just as simple enough as going like, um, you know, Oh, I'm, I'm on a diet. I'm, uh, I'm not eating dairy this month. And then, you know, your, your mum being like, Oh, here, have a chocolate. 
Oh, no, I'm not eating dairy's milk. Oh, come on, one chocolate. You know, it's like, why do you want me to eat the chocolate? I mean, is it because you're eating chocolate? What's the, like, I'm, I'm not having a piece of chocolate. I'm, you know, I'm doing a thing. Like, I've made a decision to do something for myself that's positive. Why are you trying to get in the way? It's very, psychologically, unpacking that motivation. It's very tricky, but I do think part of it is the fact that people that are low down on the spiritual ladder, let's say, you know, they're not reaching up for a hand upwards because they don't believe in upwards. So they're reaching up to pull you down. You know, that's a a sad reality that, you know, there are people who are motivated like that. And yet, you know, I mean, it is, it is the work of the devil because, I mean, if there isn't the archetype of the force that sits at the bottom of the ladder and tries to pull you down and stop you ascending towards the heavens, up towards God, yeah, that's that's definitely a thing. But who's at the top of that ladder beckoning you upwards? Jesus Christ, you know? That's, that's how I see it. Now, okay, so we're still in the Lord's Prayer here. So, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Depending on which sort of part of the faith you subscribe to, I mean, you might be a Calvinist, in which case you're deterministic and you think, you know, everything that plays out, plays out to God's plan and that actually there is no free will, there's no choice, it's just, you know, like it all unfolds how it unfolds. I don't think that's a particularly useful way of thinking. I can see the argument for it, but I don't think it's that useful, as I mentioned in the last podcast. But this appeal... This appeal is saying, you know, that ultimately we are not going to get in God's way here by saying, you know, my will be done. Because, like, we're, we're acknowledging the fact that intellectually we are not as smart, as wise. We don't have the knowledge. We don't have the understanding. I mean, in terms of our capacity we are all falling way short of god no matter no matter how smart any of us might be uh we could not create this universe you know like no way it's it's so far beyond human capacity for an individual um that it really beggars belief so we're saying like okay God, this is your creation and you've got a plan for it and you've given us this gift of being able to choose whether or not we're, we're going to help, you know, whether or not we're going to go with, we're, we're going to supplicate ourselves, we're going to submit ourselves and say, look, you're, you're wiser, you're smarter, you're more knowledgeable, you have far greater understanding, you're the boss, you know, allow us to serve you in faith and try and know your will better so that we can execute it, Uh, as opposed to going like, well, this is what I want, so I'm going to do my thing, and uh, if that gets in the way, then, you know, 
like balls to you sort of thing and that's no good at all so it's very important you'll hear me refer to the sort of my will thy will dichotomy a lot because i i really do think that it's like if you're a my will guy you're luciferian and if you're a thy will guy you're christ-like and it's right there in the prayer okay give us this day our daily bread uh I'm going to gloss right over that one because that is, I'm not sure that I necessarily fully understand that line because bread, I mean, there's like, you know, we know about like the manna from heaven. We know that God, uh, Jesus talks about, uh, you know, man cannot live on bread alone, but the bread which I give him from heaven. And then he's saying, beware the, you know, the leaven of uh, like the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and so on. You know, so there's this bread metaphor of like, you know, it's it's kind of like a you are what you eat, you know, so make sure you eat the right things and diet. Oh boy, is diet uh, important, you know, in just a, in a factual sense, you know. The more we find out about diet, I mean, it seems to be that uh, a lot of the mental health issues plaguing the developed Western world at the moment are largely as a result of diet, and it does seem to be the uh, it's the processed foods, it's the high sugar, it's the the extreme amount of carbs that we haven't you know uh, we haven't evolved to eat that way. You know that's not historically our diet, and um, you know it's screwing up the gut biome, which is all the bacteria, the bacterial ecosystem that lives in your gut. We're screwing it up by feeding it the wrong things, which in turn is causing that bacteria to like, you know, it, it's, it like rebels against us and, and starts to affect our mood. You know, there's more serotonin, which is um, one of the, so, okay. You've got uh, three, I think, main um, like neural transmitters. So those are uh, serotonin, dopamine, and uh, norepinephrine. And serotonin and dopamine are these two brain chemicals that affect your uh, pleasure center. So in a technical sense, they're the only two things you enjoy. And these are activated um, whenever you do something that, you know, your body is basically saying, hey, yes, let's have more of that. So, you know, when you have sugary sweets or, um, you know, when you... Uh, take narcotic drugs, if you smoke a cigarette, if you drink a drink, you know, there are lots of things that uh, stimulate a pleasure center response. The release of endorphins after a, a big run, um, you know, I don't need to go too far into it. But one of these core ones, serotonin, is actually in your gut as well. And more serotonin is produced by the gut than is produced by the brain. In fact, serotonin is really the province of the gut far more than it is the brain, even though it's an extremely... Uh, powerful uh, it's it's very important to the brain so um, we with our diets are screwing up the ecosystem that is responsible for a mood stabilizing and mood modulating uh, chemical that resides inside us and so you know the notion that what, what we eat is so profound. I mean, you know, you, you're not the same person when you're uh, hungry or hangry, as it's known. Um, 
you know, hangry being that anger that comes up from being hungry. So food is crucially important. And that's saying, you know, what you take into your body becomes your body. And that's where we get, you know, the idea of, of communion and the Last Supper. I mean, that's why we do, you know, take this bread, this is my body, take this wine, this is my blood. Uh, it's saying we're trying to embody Christ by literally taking a piece of him into ourselves and nourishing ourselves on him. You know, it's symbolic of, you know, trying to have his essence be the thing that nourishes us. So, you know, give us this day our daily bread is saying, it's not just saying, hey, you know, God, I, I, I need my food. I mean, you do as well. Like there is a literal interpretation as well as a sort of symbolic one. You know, we do need food. We do need God to provide in, in you know, many ways. But also it's saying like, give us, the right stuff to eat, you know, give us our spiritual nourishment as well as our physical nourishment. Okay, so uh, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. I mean, this is the real, the real test, isn't it? I mean, the ability to forgive and I fall short of this massively. Massively, I'm somebody that has come from a family culture that's, you know, look, I hold, I have historically held a lot of grudges and it's hard. It's really hard to forgive people sometimes because some people just do things that are so unspeakably cruel and malevolent to you uh, for no good reason that it can be really, really hard to turn around and go, you know what, I, I forgive you for that, you know, when, because I mean, for some people, it's not just, it's not just thoughtlessness and a little bit of selfishness. For some people, it's real malevolent evil. And to forgive that can be so difficult. So, I mean, we'll talk about forgiveness a lot because, you know, it's something that I know myself, I'm struggling through immensely, but I know that forgiveness is the right thing to do. So, you know, we, because we're told, we're told outright, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. So if you've got stuff that you need to be forgiven for, and hey, if you're human, you have stuff to be forgiven for. Because we all sin, we all miss the mark, we all fall short of God, we all fall short of Christ. And in any way that you fall short, that is something that, you know, in a technical sense, you would want forgiveness for. Because we make a lot of mistakes we make a lot of dumb decisions, we, you know, stuff up and, you know, there are all the times that we, you know, do take on that my will, not thine, and we act out of, you know, selfish interest and, you know, we want forgiveness for all of that. But if we want the forgiveness, we have to extend the forgiveness to the rest of creation and to the rest of God, well, you know, to the people who are God's creations, you know. So, you know, we, we have to forgive and that's just kind of how it is. But like, oh boy, is that easier said than done? I mean, you know, if someone figures out how to do that, please let me know. Um, 
Anyway, okay. So, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay. So, temptation. Now, it's an interesting uh, little bit there, because if you look at the um, original script and you see what the, um, the word itself means, so... Some people render uh, temptation as time of trial. So there's this this word, I suppose, that's fallen out of usage. That was a, a word at the time, um, and a very a very sort of a technical thing. Um, the time of trial. So it's more like the temptation, like what Christ experienced. You know, these these big, pivotal moments where it was like he was presented with choices where it's like hey here's everything you think you want on a silver platter you know this is like satan coming and going like hey you can you can rule over the world you know you can be like the boss you can be you can be the guy you know i will elevate you to the the absolute heights of what your you know desirous uh, ego could want and it's like, because, I mean, imagine, you know, it's the modern day equivalent would be like, because what happens when people win the lottery? I mean, a lot of people just blow it all on cocaine and hookers. You know, they live a crazy, hedonistic, pleasure-filled life. And they run themselves into the ground. And I mean, you know, Satan is able to offer all of these things, all of the, you know, the the absolute, you know, hedonistic, pleasure-seeking playground. He can feed your ego. He can elevate you in the eyes of men. He can, you know, do all these things to take you from the spiritual path and take you from the path of Christ and the path of God and onto a different path where you, you know, you're being... Uh, Put under the thumb of, you know, the devil who's making you dance to his tune. And we know that this is not good. So it's saying we don't want to be tempted. I mean, it's, you know, we don't want to be even offered the opportunity to turn from the path in an ideal world, you know, um, you know, deliver us from the evil of our own selfish desires and keep us forever enfolded in your will and under the wing of your protection, you know, um, because, you know, the, the sin of succumbing to temptations that you know are not the spiritual path and not the Christi Christian path and not the way, uh they're ever present i mean we we live in a world that is continually continually fighting uh to you know make you addicted to buying products and social media and you know watch these programs watch these movies dress this way buy these clothes do this do that like and I am certainly not making an anti-capitalist case here. I mean, I see 
a lot of beauty in some of in a lot of what humanity is able to produce. I don't think it's a bad thing that we have, you know, people who are making cars is the thing that popped into my head, right? I mean, you know, we don't all want to drive the same car. You know, we don't want there to be only one kind of car and everybody has to drive it because, you know, that car would be crap. Um, ah, now my, uh, my segment's coming up here. I've done 55 minutes, so I'm just going to do a little click here and restart it. Okay, so to continue my little rant here on... Uh, on sort of, you know, uh, products and so on. It's, I don't think there is anything uh, wrong or unbiblical or unchristian about, you know, appreciating quality products and enjoying the fruits of other people's creative labors. Because, you know, what, what quality could be more uh, like the creator than creativity? You know, human beings are amazingly creative. And when we create in the direction of good, you know, when we make products that make people's lives easier or more enjoyable, that lessen their suffering, you know, I don't think there's anything bad about that. You know, and I'm, I'm including, you know, making uh, great films, great stories that describe humanity to itself, uh, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with material things in some some sense but it's it's the motivation that underlies them that is the issue you know it's when uh, a product is made that doesn't serve being that's you know something that is uh destructive in a bad way you know um and then it's also our relationship to these material things that really is is the rub. I mean, you know, I don't want to get into a... I don't know that I want to talk about the, the gun thing, um, you know, because that's a matter that can make people, particularly living in the United States, go absolutely crazy. But let's, let's you know, let's be serious about this. You know, a gun itself is not an evil thing. It's not. If it can be used to uh, responsibly kill an animal uh, that is threatening a food source. So like pests that farmers have to get rid of, it's like, you know, perfectly cool. Or if it's, you know, responsibly hunting an animal that puts food on the table for a family, you know, that that's all fine, really, obviously, you know. Um, but when a, a gun is turned on another human being, not for the purposes of self-defense, but for the purposes of oppression or murder or anger or malevolence, you know, that's that's clearly not a good thing. But the, the issue there is not the fact that somebody created a tool that can be used for good and evil. I mean, look, a hammer can be used for good and evil. A, a, you know, you could you could kill somebody with a mug. Are we going to ban, ban mugs? Oh, look, I'm not going to do a gun control thing. Let's just leave it. But my point is this. What we are seeing in the West is that, you know, people are being motivated to buy things out of fear, not out of love. They're being motivated to 
um, think that they need products in order to be happy or to keep up with the Joneses or to, you know, like there's all these, um, and if you've ever worked in a sales job and actually learned sales methodology, they talk about the motivating factors of how to convince people to buy stuff. And, uh, I can't remember them now, but I used to have a sales job and, uh, it's extremely cynically motivated because, you know, very often if you can't get somebody excited about a product for all of its, you know, good things, then you'll start to use fear as a motivator. You know, that, that idea of like, if you don't, uh, you know, have this particular outfit, then, you know, you'll be a loser or you can't be seen with, uh, you know, a four-year-old mobile phone. I mean, people will just think that you're, you know, poor and that you can't take care of yourself. And this is genuinely how things, you know, do uh, work in the modern-day marketplaces. It's very strange. So what we want to see is like we want to celebrate human creativity and celebrating uh, a well-made product there's nothing wrong with that, but we always want to subordinate uh, our connection with worldly possessions under our spiritual relationship to the divine. You know, it has to be subordinated under your spirit, under your relationship with God, under your relationship with Christ. And, you know, because if you let the material dictate the terms of your life well i'll tell you the material like that's that's the realm in which satan has his power like that's the luciferian thing is that you know to twist the very fabric of our material reality and convince you that that's all there is one which we know there isn't uh and that what's there isn't on your side, that fatalistic sort of worldview that the universe is unthinking, uncaring, and is just uh, aiming at your destruction. Uh, and that the only source of happiness that can be found is in the accumulation of stuff. You know, buying things that you don't need, you know, as status symbols, you know, that, uh, you know, Ah, oh, well, if I buy a, a really, really nice car, then, you know, people will know that I'm doing well and that I'm, you know, a big shot and rah, rah, rah and all this sort of thing, you know? So, it's a tricky one. Um, and temptation is everywhere, but, you know, provided provided that you let your highest spiritual aspect, you, you're letting your connection with God and your connection with Christ, your relationship with Christ, dictate the terms of how you make your decisions and how you experience the world, you're going to do fine. And that's what's really... Uh, oh, God. Dog chasing cat. Um, that's, really, that's really the crux of it. So, you know, lead us not into temptation. Um, you know, don't let us be tempted from the path, but deliver us from evil. And, uh, in you know, so lead us not into the time of trials, i.e., uh, you know, Satan tempting Christ in the desert. But deliver us from evil. And in some manuscripts uh, that is translated to deliver us from the evil one. You know, so who is the evil one? The evil one is the Lord of Terror. That is Satan, that's Lucifer, that's the devil. Whatever you want to call it, it's the negative force that opposes life. And I've always thought it was very fascinating 
that evil is live spelt backwards because that makes complete sense because live life love you know all these all these words that are overwhelmingly on the side of being which in turn is on the side of the supreme being which is god the dark reflection of that the mirror image the the opposite countenance is evil that which is against life that which is against love um so you know and that and that which pulls you back from genuinely living because some people are so oppressed by their own fear of things going wrong their own fear of doing the wrong thing their own fear of you know putting themselves out there you know and living truthfully and openly the way that in their deepest deepest soul of soul their deepest core of their heart and core of their being yearns for them to express themselves fully in the world you know and be who they really are but it's fear that holds us back from that and you know a fear that keeps you from living well that would be the opposite of live which would be evil you know at least that's how i feel about it so that was over an hour on the lord's prayer um which i guess is fine uh the other thing i was going to talk about now i should actually pull up the uh the verse here so i can read the story so i went to a bible study group the first uh time attending this group and um it was great you know lovely lovely people and they just talked about um uh one particular story out of luke which i'm sort of trying to find as i talk here um and it's an early story um i think it was chapter five but i could be wrong um it's talking about uh jesus as a boy at the temple during passover so okay it's uh Luke chapter 2, verse 41. So the boy Jesus in the temple. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So it's a pretty interesting story. as a reasonable amount to uh, unpack because... You can sort of picture it, right? So, I mean, you've got Jerusalem. It's the the center of the Jewish world. And 
every year at Passover, Jews from all around make the pilgrimage uh, for the Feast of the Passover. And so, you know, um, I think the numbers that were getting thrown around last night, and I cannot speak to their accuracy, but it's something like, you know, in Jerusalem, you had like 400,000 or something like that. And during uh, the Feast of the Passover, that population would blow out to like 1.2 million. It's just like, what? Okay, so serious, serious pilgrimage. Now, whether those numbers are accurate or not, we can certainly accept that, uh, and those aren't biblical numbers either. They're just, you know, what uh, the guy was saying last night from his research. Uh, whether those numbers are correct or not, we can certainly picture that at these particular, uh, you know, days and, and big events, that people would come from all around and that the you know, uh, population would completely blow out. And the city itself could certainly not uh, hold all these people. So what you would expect is that if people are traveling from a long way away, they would be camping outside the city. You know, that would be a, a fairly reasonable thing to, to think. So Christ travels there with his family. Uh they go into Jerusalem when they attend the feast, and then, you know, Jesus kind of buggers off and does his own thing. Um, and he wanders to the temple and spends three days there. Uh, it does say, yeah, after three days. So, and this was after uh, they'd already done a day's journey. So, four days total. So, Jesus lives in Jerusalem, presumably near the temple, uh, for four days. And when he's found, he's at the temple with the rabbis, hanging out with them, uh, listening, asking them questions, having discussions with them. And so, I mean, presumably someone put him up uh, for the night, you know, the nights that he was there and they sort of let him do his thing. But you can kind of picture it, right? You know, I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, e even if you've uh, never have been, you know, to a country where they're, they're present, no doubt you've seen them on TV or in movies, you know, ultra-Orthodox Jews, you know, Hasidic Jews with, you know, the outfits and the forelocks and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you can totally imagine how, like, because th these wouldn't just be rabbis of the temple. These would be rabbis from other cities who are, are making the pilgrimage as well. They're all hanging out at the temple. They're all discussing stuff. They're, you know, like, and I mean, rabbis love to argue, you know, so they like to have these, you know, incredible, like, back and forths where it's like, the way, the way, I, I think it's a tradition that we should, uh, seriously consider adopting because you know the notion of like getting theologians together to have these incredible debates and arguments where you know they sort of go like because they would do it sort of academically like they quote other rabbis you know they have their uh like the talmud which is a, a rabbinical uh commentary on the torah so in in the jewish tradition i mean the torah is the book no, they've got all the other books that form up our Old Testament, but the main one, the the one that's like the one, is what's known as the Torah or the Pentateuch, and that's the 
uh, five books of Moses. They're the first five books of the Old Testament. And that contains, you know, uh, from a Jewish standpoint, all of God's wisdom and the law. So, you know, these uh, rabbis get together and they all discuss Torah. And, you know, there's this beautiful tradition that they have that they've been carrying on for, you know, thousands of years of, uh, you know, the oral tradition of communicating different bits of wisdom and arguing and puzzling and debating. And so I'm just, I, I'm laying all this out to really like set the scene, right? Because you've got, you know, these kind of like ultra pious, you know, they, they do all the prayers, they do all the bits, they wear the clothes, they, they're, you know, very kind of ostentatiously we're holy men kind of stuff. And they're all hanging out at the temple and they're, they'd be having a great time, you know, arguing, discussing. You can picture it, right? These people were fanatical about God, but I mean in a good way, you know. And then this precocious 12-year-old wanders up and uh, starts asking questions, you know. And so, you know, he might have a question about... I mean, I, I it doesn't say what, um, you know... He, he just went up and uh, asked them questions. So it says, I'll, I'll read it again. Uh, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers. Now, teachers, uh, strictly speaking, that is rabbis, okay? Um, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So you can just imagine this kid wanders up, and he asks like an insightful question, you know, and that would catch the rabbis off guard in the first instance because, you know, here's this kid from like a, you know, kind of a no-name town and, you know, he's just kind of wandered up and he wants to hang out with the rabbis and then he's like, oh, well, you know, and he asks some super insightful question about like God or the Torah and then, you know, these rabbis go, all right, well, let's, let's you know, drop some wisdom on this kid and they explain their perspective. And you can just imagine he'd he'd hear this and he'd kind of go, yeah, okay, like I like this bit, but I don't like that bit. And he'd kind of come back at them with like, oh, well, you know, is what you're saying this? And he would, you know, repeat it back to them just amazingly, you know, like with, with just a wonderful, like they say they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So he is showing that he is very proficient in Torah and the law and understanding the nature of God. And anything that he came back with, he was just impressing them, you know. And this is this is to say, it's setting the scene of like, Christ knew from a young age, he understood his relationship with his father being God. Uh he understood the law, he understood the, the Jewish tradition, he understood the Jewish faith, and he had such a incredible understanding that he could stand as a 12-year-old boy in a group of very studied teachers and speak with authority. And we know from later on in the New Testament, later on in the story, that, you know, he's speaking with an authority where, like, he's, you know, He'll quote scripture all day, but he will interpret it the way he interprets it, and people will go, whoa, who is this guy who speaks with such authority? You know, he's not quoting rabbis, he's just laying it down, 
He's laying down the law, so to speak. And this is a hint, you know, as to the degree of his insight. You know, he, he really knew. And uh, so he spent four days, presumably. I mean, we don't we don't know if he spent the whole four days at the temple, but it's implied by the story that he was hanging out at the temple. He was hanging out with the best uh, theological minds of the day. You know, they're all in town. They're all excited to, to talk about God. He's right in the thick doing it, you know. And because you can imagine that for him, being from that small town and not having, uh, you know, too many, too much freedom as a, as a boy, you know, he knowing his relationship to God, he'd want to talk about that stuff. He'd want to experience that. He's, you know, I mean, who would be more enthusiastic about God than Jesus himself? And so he's got this opportunity to go and, uh, you know, flex that part of his spiritual muscle, you know. And so he took it and he, he would have enjoyed those four days immensely, as I'm sure did the rabbis who were around him. Um you know, because that's the, that's the right kind of precociousness for a child, you know, like that inquisitive mind. We know kids, you know, we know kids that have those those brilliant inquisitive minds that are always asking questions and always just trying to find out more. And I think he was, you know, trying to measure up the the rabbis and assess, you know, what wisdom they had and perhaps more importantly, what wisdom they didn't have, you know, as a bit of a foreshadowing for things to come. So he says to his parents this famous line, you know, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Which uh, is also sometimes read, rendered as why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And uh, the way it was being discussed last night, if you sort of research into um, the original meanings of those words, it's it's something along the lines of, because, did you not realize that because of my father, this is the place where I'm supposed to be? And, you know, so you can kind of see how, how I must be in my father's house, father's house being the temple, uh, or I must be about my father's business, i.e. the business of discussing and exalting and teaching about God, the father, you know. So you can see how both renderings kind of work. It's basically saying, obviously, this is where I would be because of my relationship to God. And, you know, but they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them, which is a little confusing because, you know, when you see like angels appeared before Mary and told her, yeah, it, it's a bit of a strange one. But then you think, you know, if Jesus was a reasonably normal kid for the first 12 years, you know, well, look. Who, who knows about that particular one? Um, I mean, there are a lot of confusing things in the Bible, no doubt. But uh, you could see how if he'd been a normal kid for 12 years, that like this sudden deviation from his normal expected behavior would be seen as quite unusual. And if he speaks in this kind of riddling way where it's like, didn't you know I must be in my father's house? And, you know, like they'd be like, wait, what? You know, I mean, because they don't necessarily know that he knows, you know, that he's the Christ, that he's, you know, the son of God. I mean, 
it could very easily be that that was the confusion. So he speaks kind of paradoxically and because he does that a lot, you know, with parables and so on. And as a result, you know, he confuses uh, his own parents. But, you know, he's a good boy, so he goes down and he goes to Nazareth and he was submissive to them and basically just lived out the rest of his childhood as a normal kid. And that was very much a gift for his mother because his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Well, that's curious because isn't he like, you know, the perfect being with the same attributes as God? And it's like, well, no, not quite. Because he's perfect in his humanity and he's perfect in his divinity. Now, if he's perfect in his humanity, he must have free will, which hence the temptation with Satan in the desert. Uh, so Jesus being perfect in his humanity was offered all the same choices to rebel against God as what we were. In fact, he was offered the most extreme, uh, versions of that, which are seen in the temptation, but always made the right choice. Uh, and similarly, if he was perfect in his humanity, well, he must have grown up and developed into his adulthood the same way as any other human being would. It must be so because otherwise if he if he was just you know this like complete godlike figure who you know uh has perfect cognition as like a baby or a toddler you know and it, then his own childhood would be alien to us he you know then he's not one of us and then the whole fact of his humanity is well, he wouldn't be akin to being human. He would have like an alien-like nature. But no, he's perfect in his humanity. He is a man. So uh, he developed through his life the same way that we do. So naturally, he increased his wisdom, um, which uh, increases his favor with God because God is wisdom personified. Uh, personified, that's not the right thing to say. Wisdom embodied that god is ultimate wisdom so thus by jesus increasing his wisdom he approaches god and he uh increases his stature with man so you know he like because these rabbis would be like you wouldn't believe the kid that i met today this 12 year old boy from nazareth of all places he comes up and he's asking us these incredible questions and then, you know, we sort of told him some stuff and he's coming back at us with like, I mean, you know, these people would have been impressed beyond impressed. And it says that. It says they were amazed. His own parents were astonished to find him where they were because you could just picture it, right? I mean, you can picture by the time this has been going on for four days, he's probably sitting in the center of the circle and all the rabbis are crowded around him. You know, what began as him going up to rabbis and asking questions is now they're all congregating around him being like, get a load of this kid, you know? I mean, he's a child prodigy. So anyway, um, I wanted to talk about that a little bit and... Yeah, I'm just thinking, do I have anything else that I uh, particularly want to talk about at this point? No, I think perhaps that might be a, a good place to leave it for today. So uh, I hope wherever you are that things are going well for you, that you are getting exactly what you need. Um, 
you know, that, uh, well, I suppose it's that peace be with you, you know. Um, I hope that you're not suffering unnecessarily and, uh, yeah, God bless you all. Peace out.